Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, it might be the end of philosophy as we know it. How do you feel? <laughs> I, I feel fine. <laughs> I, you know, that's what we're going to talk about today, I guess. But the it's be, I feel like it's been the end of philosophy ever. Like, like this, yeah, like this has been kinda, mentioned before. You kind of like every few years somebody has to say that. I don't know. I, I've I've noticed it more in the last three or four years. I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. You know how I really feel? You know, there's this famous painting called The Fall of Icarus. The funny part of the painting is that, like, everybody's just going about their, their daily life. And if you look at the painting just at first glance, you're like, why is this called The Fall of Icarus? Until you notice Icarus is, like, halfway oh, I- in the water already. Like, yeah. but But it's only one part of this big scene. And so, you know, it's like... Isn't it funny that Icarus has fallen and it was this huge big deal, but everybody's just going about their business. Nobody even notices. That's kind of how I feel about philosophy ending. <laughs> that was, I was wondering where this story was going. <laughs> I don't think anybody's worried about philosophy ending except for philosophers. No, I think um, that's not true. I think people are very concerned. They're about. worried. I see it in their eyes as yeah. I walk down the street. We're going to talk about some reasons why people should be worried and some ways maybe that the issue can be addressed. All this is very much, I don't know, in line with my attitudes lately, but you're going to probably defend the status quo. I'll end up defending why this is nothing but clickbait journal article. (laughs) Philosophy is doing fine. It's doing better than ever. I maintain, actually, it's doing better than ever. All right, good. It should be a lively discussion, then. If we can Uh, make it through. Part of the problem is that we are doing a kind of celebratory episode as well. What's not dying is our podcast. And in fact, we just hit a million downloads. That's right. Tonight. So we we are recording late at night and um, we are celebrating and thanking um, everybody. We, who would have thought 65, episode 65, yeah. who would have thought an episode one? Yeah, we were going to do this as a mini-series. I, I think I've said it before. I thought it was a dumb idea. Like, I was like, fine. Generation I like, kill. I, I got six of these in me. Yeah. That's about it. Um, yeah. Here we are, 65 episodes later. And I talk to you more than I talk to anybody else except my immediate family. And me, and I'm not even sure that I talk to them more than I talk to you. I know. That part is not the good part. <laughs> one so, of the yeah. good parts is the t-shirt. The t-shirts, if I finally got off my ass and we went with teespring.com, teespring.com slash verybadwizards. There's also a link on the front page of verybadwizards.com. And we have 80 t-shirts ordered already. This is a, a fundraising site, but they just make quality shirts. There is a window of, I believe it was three weeks, 
to buy yeah. to order one of these t-shirts. Um, uh, available until April 12th. 20 bucks. Oh, 12th? Uh, April 12th. Uh, yeah. So I yeah, thought it was clock 21st. is ticking, people. Yeah. So get your t-shirts. They yeah, look good. All those they, I, that's a good-looking hipster t-shirt. It is, right? It doesn't have very bad wizards on the front, but on the back. People are going to look at you in a different light. This, uh, not this. necessarily a better light, but a different light. It's a little <laughs> late. We're drinking. Celebrating, man. Celebrating. You know, we keep trying to avoid the topic of free will. You just keep things fresh. But I feel like we get, we're getting hit left and right. Now, we have, we have science uh, to come in and save the day. So this is... And I almost feel bad for the authors because I actually looked up the original study and they don't talk like this. But as an author, you should be responsible. You should be held responsible for the press release press releases. The the title of this is free will question mark analysis of worm neurons suggests how a single stimulus can trigger different responses. And the summary for those of you who don't know, Science Daily is just essentially the place where universities upload the press releases. The summary, even worms have free will. That's the first sentence. <laughs> even worms have free will. If offered a delicious smell, for example, a roundworm will usually stop its wandering to investigate the source, but sometimes it won't. Just as with humans, the same stimulus does not always provoke the same response. Wait, wait, wait. Stop. You're going too fast. If offered a delicious smell, for example, a roundworm will usually stop its wandering, its wandering to, to investigate. investigate the source, but sometimes it won't. Right. Free will just requires like like variety. Like some sometimes that you just don't do something that other other times that you do. Sometimes when I roll this dice, this die, it, <laughs> right. it's a five, and sometimes it's a three. Uh, right, just yeah. like with humans, you don't need fucking neurons even. <laughs> just as with humans, the same stimulus does not always provoke the same response, <laughs> even from the same. Indi- like I love that. That's my <laughs> that might be my favorite part. Just as with humans, the same stimulus does not always provoke the same response, even from the same individual. Right. No, like, I, I get it. You probably think I'm talking about two different worms, but I'm not. I'm <laughs> talking the about the same worm. Even the same worm. Like, sometimes I like Chinese food, and sometimes I just don't feel like it. Yeah. And all, all of the books that have been published on free will have just not noticed that fact. <laughs> so sorry, Sam Harris, but not only do humans have free will... But worms do too. Well, Sam, I mean, he's it's forced his hand because he's a champion of science. And yeah. this is science. <laughs> exactly. So, this is uh, science. Yeah. This isn't like a religious journal saying that. You... <laughs> but by the way, Calvinism is wrong. <laughs> right. So, this, so, I mean, so that's one consolation prize for, for Sam <laughs> and Lutherism, you know, like Lutherism, maybe Buddhism, but that's not a consolation for him. I think Lutherism is devotees of the show Luther. I think you mean Lutheranism. <laughs> Um, uh, I don't get that. That must be an older show. You'll, you'll, this is I, I like. I, yeah. So you read the thing. It's it's not the author's fault to some degree, but I, I honestly have never seen the criteria for having free will be this minimal. As you just have to not respond to the same stimulus the same exact way every single time, and yeah. then you have free will from the again from just from the summary of the article. It's it's you take this stimulus on multiple occasions and as long as they don't stop and, you know, linger over the delicious smell the same way every single time, then they have free will. 
this is a cool it's cool like this this worm has 302 neurons and so it's easy to study you know like their nervous system but you know run this by your buddies in the philosophy department like i don't see philosophers putting out press releases about the structure of (laughs) neuron organization um and then being like you know spinoza was right (laughs) i mean you could have just stopped at i don't see philosophers putting out press releases that is that is true well let me just say this 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 is making philosophy exciting and relevant when would you have seen this, you know, yeah. even 15 years ago? Nobody would have cared to put free will in their science project. No, that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. And I don't know, like, what, what you scientists are thinking of when you say this. Thank so what do me. they think free will entails? Do they really think it entails? Because nothing responds to the same stimulus the same exact way every single time, right? right. Is there a single thing that you can think of that will do that? okay sorry even Um, that even that like like say you've done a lot of coke that's that's why free willy should be the name of this episode too (laughs) no you know this is a problem and this is i I think i've ranted i don't know if on the show but certainly to you about uh about what it means to do interdisciplinary work and what it shouldn't mean is just sort of stepping in and saying like oh look you philosophers have been struggling with free will for three (laughs) thousand years but but um, what you don't realize is that the brain and so no free will or, or, you know, as some of my dear psychology colleagues have argued, well, like, look, sometimes people act in automatic and unconscious ways and sometimes they act through deliberation and like careful thought and they equate that second thing with free will. But I, th- I think the same thing happens with consciousness where where it really is the, prob- the problem with some scientists. They haven't bothered to understand the nature of the question. And they think they have an answer because everything ought to be answerable by science, right? And and so I, you and know, they I set it, the, so then they have to set definite conditions. And, uh, and we really don't want to make this about free will, no. But I do think this is a little bit of reductio ad absurdum of just the entire project of trying to decide whether or not we have free will or not. Because there's just obviously ways in which we are free and there are ways in which we are not free. And trying to say whether the ways in which we are free are free will, I, I, don't, see the, like, I don't see the substance to that question. So, I, so I, I take sort of an opposite lesson from this which is that the question that's been debated for so long is a very sophisticated and subtle one and that what this is demonstrating is just a sheer sort of ignorance by some in this case maybe not the scientists but the person who's writing the press release that they ought to pay more attention to the refinements of the question and the true meaning of the question uh, but what's the, what is the substance to the question is this way in which we and worms are free, like not responding to that same stimulus the same way. And obviously it's much more complex for humans than it is for worms. Sorry, worms. Like, is that free will? Or is that just some other kind of freedom? Like, what's but, the substance to that question? But, so like, I, what does it matter whether we call that free will or not? Well, I mean, I think, <laughs> I think it matters quite a bit. And I took it that your mocking of the question was your sort of sneaky way of doing conceptual analysis, which is like, obviously the ability to respond to the same stimulus in different ways is not what anybody means by free will. Right. I mean, that's true. So there's like clear cases, but, but now you get to the more complicated question where it comes w- with humans. And it just seems to me that the interest of 
lies in, well, what are our capacities as agents? In what ways are we free? In what ways are we not free? The interest stops there before the question of is whatever the amount of freedom that we have, is that free will? Like that's where I don't get what what the, the import of that question is. I mean, so I actually, I'm a bit optimistic that we've we've made progress in that at least now we know that there are some ways in which you can say free will in the way that a lot of people seem to sort of naively and spontaneously describe it is almost incoherent, right? Like there is no, like the uncaused causing or or it would rely on some sort of supernatural dualism. I think that that is actually like progress that philosophers have made to say, Look, if you want to believe in that kind of free will, that that you know the purest libertarian free will, where you're sort of you somehow are the uncaused causer of all of your intentions and actions, is just it doesn't make sense. But what, again, so I agree that there's value in saying you're not an uncaused causer. Right. What I don't get the value of is okay, we've established that we're not uncaused causers. Is the the ways in which we're free within this causal nexus is that free will or is that shallower freedom or something like that yeah i mean that's i I take it though that that's that's like what you know what dennett calls the free kind of free will worth wanting right which is and and i think that we've made progress because of but what's progress on what i mean this is actually relevant to the second second segment topic but like progress towards what like labeling like terminology useful terminology what what have we made progress towards i mean like i i I think that the layperson takes freedom to actually mean a certain thing and then gets threatened when say they are faced with the the you know the causal sort of nature of of the world and, they take freedom but, to mean a lot of different things, right? Like if they're in jail, then freedom means something different. If you're oppressed, freedom means something different. If you're handcuffed, well, I, freedom means something it, different. Yeah, but I, I mean, I thought we were ta- so let's just limit this. <laughs> this is that is the ultimate freedom um, <laughs> to give in. Okay, like clearly there's different like definitions of the word freedom, but if we're talking free will, I think that the progress is, that can be made is that. If you were walking around with some belief that in order to be morally responsible, you need to be the uncaused cause or spiritually sort of by a, a non-physical entity that's acting on on physical bodies, then what the the work of philosophers has done is show you why like you can have a perfectly reasonable view that says everything is caused, you know, atoms, billiard balls and and whatever. Maybe some randomness, but whatever. And, and toss in some randomness and and that isn't that threatening to to your belief in in your agency or in your moral responsibility. Okay, so so like once you connect it up with moral responsibility, then I think the substance comes into the question. But until you do that, I see the the interesting stuff just trying to figure out what is this kind of freedom that we have? What's the kind of freedom that we might think we have but we don't? And then why might this be valuable? But you until just... you connect it with moral responsibility and unless you connect free will with almost define it in terms of free will is the thing you need if you're going to be justly held responsible for your actions, then it just seems like well, look, we can you can call this free will, or if your conception of free will is a little more exotic than mine is, then you cannot call it free will. Well, so call it agency, call it whatever. Just make up a new name. Well, so, call so there's it two, there's zombie a couple, freedom. There's a couple of things that you might be saying. One is that um, the the methods of analytic philosophy are useless because where have they gotten us? 
But then when you said that last thing about, well, when you actually bring it to bear on more responsibility, then what it sounds like you're saying is, no, the methods of analytic philosophy, to add some conceptual clarity, really do provide some useful information and they do good work. It's just that that kind of work ought to be applied to questions that matter it's not just even moral responsibility it's like what's the kind of freedom you need where a blaming attitude makes sense but or a punishment not, or a punishment but, but what is that's that not if conceptual, not conceptual analysis. analysis what is it's it? not it's a substantive question it's well, not gonna be, if, if what you're using as the opposite of conceptual analysis is substantive question, then I, f- I feel like I feel like I can't win this. Well, argument. right, because conceptual. Uh, oh, right. Uh, <laughs> that's sort of almost that's, analytic. That's exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think that that is a really relevant question to which you apply the tools of analytic philosophy, and, and you know, it may be that that conceptual analysis isn't the only tool of analytic philosophy. I'm not, I, I, I don't know what else you guys say you do. Um, but I think that we don't progr- respond to the same sim- yeah, stimuli. But, but the, the very thing that you say, like you love Strawson's view. Right. How is Strawson not a great example of somebody who tackled a problem that was important? And, and as far awesome as I know, example. he never, yeah. and that to me is analytic philosophy. I don't know. Un, in oh, what I mean, tradition, I'm, I'm happy to include that within the, the umbrella of analytic philosophy because I think it is. And I wish it more of analytic philosophy was like that. But I, I refuse to classify it under the umbrella of conceptual analysis because I, I really think it's at the opposite well, end of that. I, I, conceptual analysis is gettier cases. It's what do we mean by knowledge? Uh, oh, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about this. Like, is it justified true belief? Like, what are the conditions? Like, oh, here comes a counterexample. Here, come, you know, like that's that's so not what Strawson is doing in well, that paper. But here's, I feel like, on the one hand, you you have a valid claim, which is that you don't like analytic philosophers who ask and answer questions you like that you think are stupid and mental masturbation. Somebody don't knock like masturbation. P- it's sex with someone I love. With mental when you're <laughs> with mental masturbation, you get ranges. What I think that you are not granting is that the kind of rigor that Strawson used to arrive at those arguments is the kind of rigor that is born out of the tradition of analytic philosophy. And look, if you want to call it conceptual analysis, if you want to save that label for only people who focus on the for things that are analyzing well, no, concepts. I mean, I mean, I think that he was analyzing the concept no, of responsibility was, in, in an important way. Not, he wasn't doing science. He wasn't just doing, I know, you know, but you, you know what? That's, philosophy. Those are, like, that's a false dichotomy that you're either not, doing science you or you're doing conceptual listen, analysis. If you, if you would have listened to, as I continued the sentence, you would have heard yeah. me give a third option and th- th- you would have realized it can't be a false dichotomy because it's a, at least a trichotomy, right? You can do a lot of things. You can do do what continental philosophers might do. You can what is, what is that? A, yeah, I don't know. Uh, use German words and, and, and oh, we'll get to that. You could you could collect data, and what he was doing, I think, is squarely in a tradition that wouldn't it just would not have emerged if it weren't. No, for you can also do what Mont- Montaigne did. You can okay, also you can do, do what Pascal did. So, but wait, but wait, this is all second this. segment stuff. Let me, but okay, <laughs> okay, but let me finish this. The rigor and the search for consistency in applying concepts. Well, let's actually save this for the next second. And we are not doing another free will episode, for God's <laughs> sakes. All right, let's take a quick break. Two, three, four. Don't go against the grain, simple and plain. Don't go against the grain, simple and plain. Against 
the grain simple and plain. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Today we're talking about the apocalypse for philosophy. The philocalypse. <laughs> the <philocalypse>. <laughs> <laughs> There's been a lot of things coming out from fairly well-known people and some not well as well-known people that says, like Frankfurt said philosophy was in the doldrums and Peter Unger just wrote a book called Empty Ideas. There's also two articles that we'll link to. One is called The End of Philosophy by um this is why way, to, way to be prepared <laughs> jasper duman and uh the other is called for a non-ideal metaphysics just the title right there is just great um and that's by justin e smith at the university of paris diderot before we get to all that we want to thank everybody for their support we've gotten some really nice sized donations and some little donations um, since we recorded the last episode and we really appreciate that it makes us feel good and it helps us fund all the work that we do for the podcast and um, so you can support us by going to our support page and clicking on the Amazon link and then just buying stuff and whatever you buy will be um, we'll get a little chunk of that a tiny little segment of that or you can just support us directly on PayPal and rate us on iTunes like us on Facebook really good Facebook stuff lately so we really appreciate that yeah. um, what else can they do and some uh, really nice reviews. You can also, as we mentioned, buy a t-shirt. Uh, the t-shirt yeah, yeah. is actually uh, a way to fund us. We we didn't do the t-shirts really in order to fund, but it turns out that this there's this teespring.net is a, is a great way to um, fund things and give give t-shirts to, to our supporters. So I'm really looking forward to it. There's there's a couple weeks left. April 12th is the deadline to order. So by the time you hear this, maybe there'll be one week left. So order your t-shirt. Uh, they won't be available for order after that. Um, we have quite a bit, quite a few. And then we'll probably just do a little campaign where we ask people to take pictures of themselves in t-shirts and no pants. <laughs> Is that, I'm not sure about that. So that's what, I thought that I was the plan all along. I, I wish you had talked to me before <laughs> announcing that. Uh, I mean, you wear shorts. <laughs> so we should also say that... Although this is the same episode as the time we recorded the first segment, it is not the same day. No, in fact, it's quite a di- <laughs> very different day. day and we're in def- very different states. Yeah. I don't know if you could tell from the first segment, but I was completely exhausted. Both of us had been drinking a little bit, uh, or been in my case, a lot. Water. Drink. You were taking yeah. swigs from <laughs> the flask. Sleep deprivation and uh, and uh, yeah. So so we listened to the. I was we were editing this uh, the second segment, and it was just not something that anybody would want to hear. And so we decided to do this over. Turns and out there's no there's no good anti slur filter on my audio <laughs> software, um. or just anti rambling. I mean, we just <laughs> made no sense. The, as I, I I sat there trying to edit that thing, and we made no sense whatsoever. One thing that I, that happened between these two um, recording sessions, I got a haircut, 
and <laughs> just what they tune in for <laughs> exactly <laughs> oh good i was wondering when tamler was going to get a haircut so the no the reason i'm mentioning it is because remember when you and you and sam um when i was kind of defending the good sides of religion um though i'm not religious myself and you were saying i want you to spend three weeks in a some sort of town that's dominated by a fundamentalist pastor and go to the the church with the fundamentalist preacher and then see how sanguine you are about about religion and i said well you know i'm not going to quit my job leave my family and you know, no, you just could, to satisfy you your take, little you ethnographic yeah, experiment right. but you um, mean to defend your claims appropriately defend my claims level of commitment sure <laughs> However, I did, you'll be happy to know, have about 20 minutes to half an hour in a barber's chair from a fundamentalist Christian who had me essentially prisoner, right? I mean, I'm sitting there in that chair. There's nothing I can do if I get out. And he, from the moment I sat down to the – well, no, okay. From the moment I sat down – until I think my face registered just please stop this was just telling me about the benefits of Jesus for his life and I guess he was a Pentecostal minister and he started in on Jews killing Jesus the <laughs> Jews killed Jesus and he told them how can you save yourself and uh, and you know I said well I thought that the Romans killed Jesus he just went right by that and it it just it just kept going and you know I stopped just responding to anything that he said finally uh he stopped talking about it but you know I got a little taste of it and it was there was a lot of Jesus in this haircut <laughs> and then it's not a good haircut it fucking sucks I, it's I, like, I didn't, I didn't want like to say anything bo- I know <laughs> it's like this bowl cut like ridiculous like my Jen came she, she said what did you what happened to your hair so I, I have a little taste of it now I see the sort of the, the, the a little side of the insanity of certain aspects of it but that's really the first time I've experienced it since moving to Houston I've been here like almost seven years thank god you were already circumcised <laughs> you think he would have just circumcised me with the with the bar you know not that no, I don't wish that he had, you know, given me a little extra circumcision. But you know, like whatever he did to my hair, couldn't it couldn't be that much worse? <laughs> yeah, at least your pants tend to cover the botch cir- <laughs> <botched> circumcision. <laughs> you know, at one point though, he really did sort of sense my just stop it kind of vibe, and then he just and then he switched to the topic which I was interested in because Rushmore had been filmed in that barber shop. It's kind uh, of a little old time barber shop, and yeah, they and Rushmore had been filmed there, and he talked about meeting Bill Murray and and Jason Schwartzman and uh, yeah. Uh-huh. And, and <laughs> so take, much, so, so much more interesting than Jesus. <laughs> it was a little more interesting than the Bill Murray. Of Jesus. Man, he met I mean, Bill he Murray. Whole How was he not talking about Bill Murray to every barber? Like, no, he was. Like, he was talking like, about he, Bill Murray. Like, fell asleep, I guess, in the barber's chair while he was during the <laughs> during the shots, and yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but man, it was, and he told me about his awakening and how it saved his life and how he was a sinner. We were born, like all of us, we were born in sin, and then he, he found Jesus, and there was like a big like angel that appeared to him, and just not letting it go. Yeah. There's the other thing. 
So I said, like, I was trying to describe this great books course that I teach that stops around August. You know, it's all different readings year to year, but it stops at Augustine. He'd never heard of Augustine. He had no yeah. idea. I mean, Augustine is a saint, right? I mean, you know better than me. Uh, yeah, but if he's Pentecostal, he's Protestant, and they don't they don't actually believe in saint. I mean, for all your defense true? religion, you should probably read a little bit about you know, what what you're defending. No, I just defend the people. I don't defend the actual doctrines. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Catholics are the ones. Who, I mean, yeah. oh, so Augustine is meaningless to a Protestant. I mean, I he's he's a meaningful in the in the sense that he's meaningful to to you, right? As a, as an early philosopher, uh, as somebody who. But that's who, it. Yeah. Oh, see, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Protestants, really? you know. Yeah, I mean, the the Protestant Re- Reformation was about you know like. Just it's about you, the Bible, and God. Like that's. He kept saying the the whole Bible, though, and I didn't know what that meant. It means that he wants to defend like being anti-gay because of like the random text in Exodus and stuff. That's what what, when people say the whole Bible, you know, they're like you know, and the six thousand year Earth, and you know, (laughs) I shouldn't malign people who say, but yeah, you know, I I was I was gonna be, I was feeling more generous towards him, especially since he did eventually switch to the Rushmore story. But then I came home and looked at my haircut. (laughs) (laughs) That's really the offense here. And you know, there's nothing like. What am I gonna do now? Like, what do you do with a really bad haircut? My hair is the easiest hair to cut. It usually takes someone fifteen minutes. Clippers, dude, just. Set it on a six, five, just zoom. Do it. I'll look so ridiculous. Do it. Like <laughs> You'll look ridiculous compared to what? <laughs> so, compared to what you look So all joking aside, is this like a terrible haircut? I can't tell. You. I, don't, I don't look at you like that. Yeah, you do. It's just it's you the do. same. You look the same. You're not jerking off like you normally do. <laughs> you always have bad hair. What was it like the spooky? What was it? how was it described by an early listener? Oh yeah, well yeah, what was that? That was old days. Ha- haunted boy haircut. Haunted, haunted young boy. boy. Hair- haunted boy's haircut. <laughs> well now it's yeah now it's haunted dork boy hair- haircut. And I you know it's, I already look like enough of a dork. So well, all right. Anyway, should we get to our topic? I think I think so. You know we've been talking a lot about how social psychology is kind of dying it's like the with the fraudulent data and the the, the p hacking and the, the widespread anti-semitism and <laughs> there was some report that a lot of like alienated social psychologists are just flying out to syria and iraq and joining isis <laughs> I, I think you're, you're getting it wrong i think what they're what they're doing is becoming philosophers <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, might be worse today what we want to talk about is is what what we're roughly calling the problem with philosophy or the you know hyperbolically the end of philosophy uh but there's been i think anybody who's listened to enough of these episodes has heard you complain fairly consistently about certain problems with philosophy but we've never really talked systematically about what what those are and it just so happens that there's just been as as you pointed out and you sent me some articles like uh, maybe a little flurry of discussion on this topic and and we'll post links to all of them, uh, an excerpt from an interview with Harry Frankfurt, a book by Peter Unger, a couple of, a, a couple of articles. And they're all, they, they all emphasize something slightly differently, but they're all pointing to this dissatisfaction. Um, and, and there, there seems to be a whole, like a, a set of maybe like two or three things that, co- that come up again and again that I think are central to, to what, what your complaints have been. Yeah. 
this is definitely something that I'm encouraged, actually, by some of these internal critics. There's always been external critics of philosophy since, you know, Aristophanes was ripping on Socrates in his plays. But there's some internal criticism right now, um, a kind of step back. What are we what are we doing here? And I, I'm speaking specifically right now of the tradition that I know about, which is analytic philosophy. Right. Uh, I, I Nothing that I say applies to what's generally called continental philosophy, <laughs> but analytic philosophy at least has the pretense of, look, we take these problems, these philosophical problems, and problems that supposedly have relevance to uh, all of us, and we approach it with the kind of rigor and the kind of critical scrutiny that it is what makes philosophy great right and i mean i gotta say like the first time the the what really got me interested in ethics was in in finally in you know high school like cracking open some plato and 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 reading the discussion of what is justice you know and i don't remember where and that like really i was like oh that's really interesting in the way that that somebody will make an argument and that plato will say well if you mean that then do you do you mean this and then they'll say well no and then and you realize and there was to me like uh, something so interesting about that method of systematic, sure. rigorous arguing. Um, but... <laughs> but So you talk about what I've been complaining about. Yeah. Um, I've been complaining about a number of things. Number one, the, the writing. You know, does, right. you know what, what are you going to do about that? But uh, In our Burning Bridges episode, I believe that there's yeah, a proper that rant. Was one of, well, that was one of my, yeah, I probably <laughs> I gave a little bit of a rant about the, the, the writing and philosophy. But now, you know, there's nothing you can do if people aren't good writers. But one of the, 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 the sources of the bad writing is the fact that everything has become so technical in philosophy. And in fact, the only way to say something new about a topic is to get into the technical minutiae of it. That requires a whole terminology, a, a, a vocabulary that's nobody but a handful of philosophers who work on that particular hyper-specialized topic knows about. Should yeah, we play the Blackburn I think I think now? so, because I think that be better than even you and I have been able to do in this little clip that you, this is your interview for your the new version of A Very Bad Wizard. Um, yes, uh, the, the, this is an interview with the philosopher Simon Blackburn, who's a philosopher at Cambridge and at UNC, the yeah. University of North Carolina. Charming accent the fellow has. I think he, in, in like whatever, three minutes, just highlights the problems really, really, really nicely. Okay, so this is early on in the interview, and I've just asked Simon Blackburn if... It's fair to say that some of his writing recently has expressed a kind of dissatisfaction about the practice of philosophy in recent years. And this was his reply. Uh, yes, I think it is. I think I'm um, out of sympathy with some strands of analytical philosophy. The, uh, analytical philosophy can rapidly get quite technical, and I don't like being made to work hard, and technical philosophy is hard. So um, if, we, if, we, if we can avoid technicalities, I think that's good. Um, of course, there may be places where philosophy sags into logic and you can't avoid technicalities. That's right. fine too, but, but it's got to be kept in its place. I also think um, 
that analytical philosophy concentrates quite rightly in some respects on the meaning of remarks, on what's said, um, the truth conditions often described as what, what makes a remark true or what would make it true. Um, and that's fine, but it can come at the expense of forgetting that it's people who use language, people who say things to each other, people who um, use concepts like good or knowledge or truth. And I think you've got to keep a very strict sort of human lead on all these concepts. Otherwise, they float off to heaven. Uh, they float off to Plato's, you know, out of the realm where the sun shines. Or to trolleys. Or to, or to trolleys and things. And you get a proliferation of isms and questions about these isms, which are not, you know, they're untethered. They're not tethered By to isms, the human you mean world. the theories? Theories, yeah. yeah. Isms and the- yeah, theories, exactly. And uh, so you can open, and I think, I, I sympathise, I'm a great Democrat, I sympathise with the ordinary reader, there is such a person, who opens a contemporary philosophy journal and can't make head or tail of what's going on. And I think that's a terrible shame. Um, any educated individual who picks up Hume or Locke or Berkeley can make a fist of knowing what's going on. And that's been lost, and I think that's a pity. So, actually, I was going to get to this later, but since we're talking about it now, let me raise, even though I couldn't have more sympathy with you on this, um, the common objection, which is nobody expects journals of biology or journals of physics or to be accessible and and that philosophy is hard and this is why, you know, that's an unreasonable standard to... What makes philosophy different than some of these other fields? Good. Yeah. Well, if philosophy had a string of cumulative results to its name, as physics does and biology does, I mean, we we unmistakably know more than we did a a couple of centuries ago, and we can do more. We've got technology riding on the back of uh, physical theory and so on. Um, If philosophy was like that, I'd accept the parallel. But there's no evidence at all that it is like that. Um, very basic questions keep recurring and being handled again and again in different ways. Um, So the more apt comparison I see would be with humane studies like history or literature, uh, perhaps art itself, and drama and so on. And there nobody says, oh, it's a terrible, shocking thing that we can't write plays any better than Aeschylus or Shakespeare. Um, You don't expect progress because the same old problems are human problems and they're going to revolve and they're going to come back in different guises in different places and times uh, and so you, so there's a constant industry of um, revisiting imaginatively aspects of the human condition and I think that's what philosophy does So as you said much more eloquently I don't know, if that, is that because he's British? I think but, so. I think there's like a little just trick that British people are... How do they know how to do that? There's a couple of key points here that I, I'd like to highlight. Number one, he notes that philosophers are very concerned with the meaning of certain terms or the meaning of certain concepts. And that's good up to a point, 
But once you get too far deep into trying to break down the meaning of a term using the tools of conceptual analysis, which I really want to talk about with you, it becomes, as he says, untethered from the actual way people are using these terms. It becomes, he says, you have to keep a close lead on, and by lead, that's his British way of saying leash, on human beings who are using the terms, because otherwise, he says, they float up to, to heaven or to Plato's outside the or, cave. You or know, I believe where, he, where he, said, he said where the sun don't shine, but he said it in a British no, said, way. <laughs> no, he said where the sun shines. Uh, is that what he said? I think, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's outside the cave where the sun, and it's inside the cave where the sun don't shine. <laughs> You know, I've never, I've never really thought of that. Like you're inside the cave where the sun don't shine. It's like being inside someone's ass. It's just fully up someone's ass. Like <laughs> when you're in the cave, you're up someone's ass. Yeah. And, and then he says, and bec- and then it gets very technical once it's untethered from the human. Just to try to keep refining the concept. It's 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 long past the point where it's refined enough that it can get what people generally mean when they use a term. And now it's like, well, I got to publish this paper, so I got to come up with a counterexample to this person's definition of justice or this person's definition of knowledge. And so that's one, that's one. So I, I mean, I, I, I love that point because you, you can see the various steps of moving away from, you know, because as I started, and I think the reason that this is interesting to me as a non-philosopher, and I think that this is not just like inside baseball for philosophers. This is, this is, uh, I think, a very what draws people into philosophy. What at draws first. people in? So, and and when you were telling me this, I pitched it to you, saying, you know, this is really sort of there is this weird way in which when you think, oh, I love philosophy, I would love to study philosophy, you have something very different in mind than yeah. you, you can open a journal right now, right? And I, this is where I think this is such a great point by Blackburn. I just randomly, ethics, just right now, as ethics, we were talking. which you would think would be, yeah, okay, go. Let me, go, yeah, go, just, go, go. just let yeah. me, this is from Mind, right? Which is, a, okay, take it. Uh, the title is How to Welcome Spontaneous Manifestations. Which I'm like, well, it's about ghosts. Like, right. <laughs> and it's, it's... What's the abstract? George Molnar's contention that some dispositional properties are displayed without the aid of any activating conditions poses a challenge to the conditional analysis of dispositions. Which, now, I'm not dissing this, this author because I'm sure that what, whatever they're saying is something relevant to their subfield. But what, that, what it really highlights is that I have no, I have no real hope of understanding what they are saying Unless I know George Molnar's contention, what an activating condition means for this field, what it, you know, we've had this discussion where like internalism and externalism means different things in different sub areas of conversation. Sometimes they're like almost weirdly opposite, and so that much is lost. But right, I mean, I think that that the 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 hope of being of writing a treatise in human nature is just gone. And I, well, I, I don't know if it's gone. It's well, just not what people are doing, and it's yeah. not what graduate students are encouraged to even embark on no, when right. they're in school, right? Well, and they're, I mean, they're the discouraged. I mean, they're, you, they're, the, yeah, no, the they're actively hub- the hubris that it would take to say that I'm going to write something like that. Hey, you know, and I, again, again, I have to say, like, this wasn't my experience, but I now know that this is the experience of most grad students is that, no, keep your point very small, very focused on the literature as it currently is. That's the only way that you're going to be marketable. Now, I think they overthink that part of it. I think they they underestimate the degree to which people are – 
hungry for actual some, something that's actually interesting to them rather than something that shows that they can write something that might get published in a top journal because it makes a decent point about somebody's third argument of the objection to somebody else's argument to the original objection um exactly and and i and it bugs me to no end that philosophers shrug their shoulders about that 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 ordinary people can't understand what the hell they're talking about they say well that's just you know if you look at this lighter report thread on this topic it's like it's part of the coarsening of american tastes by by television and reality shows and so it's like no it's right. not you, you don't just have to go to graduate school in philosophy to understand what the fuck you're talking about you have to actually go to graduate school and study that specific Sub discipline right. that shouldn't even exist, <laughs> right? That, I mean, it, that, to understand I, what the hell you're talking about, right? I don't think that like removing the influence of The Simpsons um, as a 12 year old, uh, right? That, like, I still wouldn't have understood. For instance, is Mariology a guide to conceivability? Like, I just wouldn't. I don't think <laughs> is I would that have another mind. That. Yeah, and these are totally uh, at random. I did not. I did not cherry pick these. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, no, I'm glad you're doing this. Yeah. So, this, so then I asked him because you know I've I've been on this hobby horse for a while, and I asked him what people ask me. Nobody expects physics or chemistry or biology. You know, if you look at those journals, right. to be accessible to the ordinary reader. Although, really strangely enough, like social psychology, like you do, you are supposed to be fairly accessible. I mean, the way I see it is, if most of Save for statistical procedures and maybe some complex methodologies. Like if you, if I can't explain to you what I do and the point of what I do, and and it, I mean we're studying, we're studying fairly straightforward things, and then right. it's like my bad. It's like I I didn't write. Right. Well. Like if there's no, true, yeah. why is that true for you and not us? Like why I mean, should yeah. that be true for you and not us? Yeah, when I when I was a like in high school and reading Plato, like I did not know philosophy. This was my introduction. Like you could, you know. It would be very for all my problems with him. He does actually. He doesn't write in this hyper technical. No, because he was. It was talking to other human beings. This was like a transcription of Socrates talking to human beings, right? Right. So So you asked that right. When when you asked that question, I was like, beautiful, exactly, exactly the right question. I was like a little bit like on your jock for having asked it, because usually I think that you asked. And I was. You're already. I was rock hard at the answer. (laughs) I mean, I was just like it was embarrassing because because the answer is so beautiful. And you didn't even need to take a bite. You can't compare philosophy to chemistry and to to biology and to physics, where there's been this string of successes and this great uh, you know accumulation of results. Philosophy is just not like that. It's not that kind of field. We and this is the this is the problem. Philosophers think it is, and so they think that excuses that them getting really hyper technical and hyper specialized. But it's not. We're still fussing about the same things we fussed about in the time that Plato was writing. When when uh, Whitehead said all philosophy is a footnote to Plato, it's true, and it's just a matter of fashion and trends that we happen to be focused on this problem rather than that problem, there's not progress in the sense that there's progress in the sciences. We don't have a completely different understanding of morality in the same way we have a completely different understanding of, of physics or, or chemistry. Or, and, and 
what I like about it is he gives a positive analogy. He says, well, it's more like the humanities. It's more like humane studies. It's more like history. It's more like literature. Nobody expects people to be better playwrights than Shakespeare in order to justify being a playwright. Nobody expects you to be a better historian than Thucydides in order to justify being a historian. So, But like that, isn't that fairly damning i mean it, it really i don't so, think so but so it the, but the goal but the goal in philosophy is to uncover truth of some right and isn't there this sort of hope that the method is that there should be progress and that it that that we know more than we did before i mean isn't uh, i mean in it, the, the same way that we might know more about leadership when we read Henry V or Henry IV Part One, right? I mean, so it definitely can shed light on, the, on these problems and issues that we all face as human beings. But the idea that there should be this kind of straight line of progress on these issues is just – it's. I mean, whether it should or shouldn't be like that, it's not like that. We have to right. face that, right? Well, you know, but if it's if you know, the question is, is it not like that, and we're wrong to expect that it would ever be the case, or is it that yes. that we ought to expect it and we're doing it wrong? Let's talk about because this is, I think, the root of the problem. This expectation of progress modeled after scientific progress is right. what led to conceptual analysis becoming the dominant form of philosophy in the 20th century into the 21st century again just for analytic philosophy so and right. we talk about conceptual analysis all the time but i don't think we've ever actually defined what it is at its right. most basic level it's trying to figure out what we mean when we use a certain term like justice, what we mean when we use a term like knowledge, what we mean when we use a term like goodness, free will. What do we mean when we use those terms? And trying to clarify that, right? That's right, right, right. right. And that's, I mean, that's what Plato was trying to do about justice, right? It's like, like the whole republic. You yourself, you yourself know, right? You yourself know what you mean by justice. You just, it's not clear to you that you, at some level, know. So let me clarify, because right. you say it's this, but then do you also mean this? Well, no, I don't mean that. Aha. Uh-huh. See, you see, now we are together refining, like we were pointing out, we're shedding light, we're clarifying. That's, that's like, the, I think the, the that's the, the goal. The, yeah. And yet it's also the least interesting part of the Republic is <laughs> the conceptual analysis. And a lot of that is restricted to book one. But certainly Plato pioneered the, the method of conceptual analysis. He did it with piety in, in the Euthyphro. He did it with knowledge. He did it. So, and, and the general idea behind conceptual analysis, you take this concept and you try to come up with some sort of theory. Um, and theory is usually in the form of these criteria that have to be fulfilled in order for, as Simon Blackburn says, it to be true that, that you know, there was an instance of, of knowledge here. So someone will propose a hypothesis. Again, it's, it's very much along the lines of science. Okay, here's what knowledge, here's what we mean by knowledge. We mean it's somebody who has a true belief. And then somebody will come up with a counterexample. 
saying, well, no, because you could have a true belief and you could be lucky. Like I could just believe that the next card is going to be a two, not having counted cards, just total wild guess. And then it turns out to be a two. But did I really, if I say I knew it, no, I didn't really know it. Right. right. right? So, um, and then you say, okay, well then knowledge for something to be an instance of knowledge, it has to be a justified true belief. And then you get into the whole nightmare of Gettier cases. Which Which you talk about more than actually epistemologists do. Maybe. (laughs) But that, but you can't deny that there's been, I mean, yeah, a guy like uh, Neil Sadaga to Sudoku, Sudoku, I believe it's uh, he just published an article in the Journal of Philosophy and a new variation on a Gettier case. I like the guy, right. but uh, that it's still it's still going. And and then again to keep making contributions. Once you've gotten to the point where it's like, yeah, look, we mean by knowledge it has to be justified and it has to be true. We can't get more technical than that, and we don't. And more specific than that, more precise than that. And why do we need to? Why would we think that 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 it even exists? Some some theory that can be immune to any conceivable counterexample. You know, it doesn't even have to be real. It ha- it could be imaginary. It can be something that a philosopher dreams up because he needs to publish that one more article to get tenure. And, 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 but if your theory can't resist that counterexample, now you have to respond to it. Why would we think that there is this theory out there that can do that? What possible grounds do we have for that belief? Right. You know? Well, and, and maybe, maybe it is just this belief that it's like science. I mean, I think that there is something really to, to this, and I don't think it's and I want to spend a little bit of time talking about it because I think that that maybe the the analogy, even if it's not an explicit belief by people that it's the same thing, the analogy, I think, underlies some of these problems, especially the one. I mean, science proceeds by division of labor, by divide and conquer, and you can accrue insight, as Blackburn says. You, over time, you, um, you know... Oh, like, you know, we know we know that this is how cells work. Ah, but like there's this part of the cell working that we don't right. quite know. And so somebody goes and studies that, whereas somebody goes and studies that other part of the cell. And then somebody studies the subparts and the subparts of those processes and gets it, you know, and and then guess what? You know, you can write like now you want to write an over a textbook chapter where you write an overview of how cells work. And you read their thing and their thing and their thing and their thing and their thing. And you kind of put together this picture that is true in some deep sense, I think, of how cells work. At the very least, it has predictive power. It has explanatory power. It can can be used in the world to build rocket ships and, you know, there's something you can show – for the, the, there's something you get to show from these results. And if there's not, then that's a problem if you're a scientist. Right, right, exactly. Because if, if all of a sudden you get results that just don't match everything that you thought, then you have to do revision. But that's, that's why, you know, graduate students in science, like, there's a way when you read, you know, I, I used to have so much fun at graduation ceremonies reading the titles of dissertations, you know. It's like, there is no good, there's no real field in which they're, you know. Good titles. <laughs> good titles, right, where you can understand Especially that thing that comes after the colon. You know. But it makes sense because somebody had to solve that particular subproblem of a subproblem in order to make to sort of it, at least it channels may, its maybe way. Maybe somebody had to solve it. I mean, if if what you want is complete, you know, understanding. But it's unclear to me that 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 kind of division of labor and philosophy is actually helping anybody. If you want, if you want to knock out the fourteenth argument present in so and so's, you know, objection of so and so's. Uh, Variation you know, on argue, the Frankfurt case or a 
Yeah, what do you do to bring all of those together? Like They're zombies. Do you, do you, are there review papers where where people you know sort of bring together all of these arguments to arrive at a general sort of like because everybody's done these things now we have a better picture but, of but what he, consciousness is. So, no, to answer your question, not really. There's certainly not a category of review papers like there is um, in psychology, but. I, I would take a step back and question what you are even doing. What's the progress you're making? Even if you can't, you then unify it with all these other people who are also working on their own fields. What have you accomplished? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know, right? I mean, I so I, I tend to defend this sort of thing because I think it's important one of the reasons I, I defend at least getting rigor in terms of concepts is because the sloppy use of concepts can be damaging and it can be damaging in, in science, for instance, psychology. Yeah, and absolutely. this is this is one of the criticisms we had about uh, about, you know, the use of or the psychology of free will that With the worms that they're conflating. Yeah, the worms and, and, you know, the wrong measures and they're conflating determinism. And I think that that's what you were doing. Was was you were being like no these concepts mean something and they're bastardized like they're just butchering these concepts like by by calling right. determinism so the same that, thing as free yeah, will absolutely so you know that is again if it stopped there if it was just no no look that's not if you really think about it we don't think free will is just responding to the same stimul stimulus a different way on successive occasions yeah but the differences between say you know determinism and you know nihilism and freedom and agency sure. those are all things that like i don't know that there would be a good stop rule for when the field i think that like a lot of progress was made on those and those distinctions. But but there needs to there doesn't need to be a stop rule, but there needs to be a sense of, okay, we've gotten as precise as it's fruitful to get about this topic. And now to the extent that we are continuing in this analysis, it is a game. It is a crossword puzzle. It's a Sudoku. It's not anything that contributes to our insight or understanding about the way people use certain terms or the way we experience the world. And in fact, it's going the other way. It's abstracting and idealizing to a point where it detracts from our understanding about how people use these words, because that certainly happens. So this is what, you know, the, the experimental philosophy critique, right? That, you know, they start saying, well, actually, you say that people use terms this way, but we tested them and they don't. And one common response to that is, well, that's because we're experts. And well, once you've said that, it's like, well, then what were you doing in the first place? I thought we were analyzing the concept and the way ordinary people use it. And now you're saying, no, this is how people should use the concept. But, but, but then it's like, based on what? Cause you, but that's not entirely unfair because that's exactly what the critique was of like the free will scale. Sure, that is how people are using it, but you really did believe they were using it wrong. And the belief no, I that they're believe using they're, it they're using it not in the way that people actually think of free will. Well, they think of free will in that way. I mean, your very objection was that they were sloppy with their concept and that you – that and as somebody That's, who knows the difference between free will like and compatibilism and determinism and nihilism, like, you know, you, you say these things. You say, like, this question isn't assessing – like, how can they say that this is a question about determinism? This is just a question about belief in whatever, you know. 
Right. This is more fatalism. This is more. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that's right. Because so yeah, just because I don't think that you need to fuss over every little Frankfurt counterexample, that doesn't mean that I have to endorse anybody using the terms of free will but okay, in but any I mean, way but, they want. Right. I, like exactly. Be- exactly. But there is. But it's not obvious where you should. Right. I think that somebody could say to you, like, dude. Like, bro, come on, man. This is just a scale of like kind of what people like I think people mean. Like, who are you to tell me that like fatalism well, is if you thought, if, if you different? can justify that, then that's fine. But, but how do I, I justify it? By by trying to show that this is re- what people really mean by free will. But they don't but try to How do it. I do that? I construct a scale that you're the that you're critiquing on a conceptual ground. Like I I feel like there is somewhere to say like this is valuable. Like this is not only is it valuable, but we have gotten to a point where we so are wait, better. But but you seem to be saying two different things. I agree with you on the first thing, which is that there is some value to being clear what we mean by certain concepts. Right. I absolutely a hundred percent agree with that. And then you seem and then when I say but we go way beyond that in virtually all that philosophers do to get published in philosophy not all but but most uh we go well beyond that point where we're where we're pretty sure that we're all talking about the same thing at this point or if we have differences then at least we know what those differences are we go way 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 beyond that using fanciful counterexamples and thought experiments etc and you're saying well there's no place that you can draw a line therefore no line should be drawn i no, agree no, there's no saying... place that we can draw a line but there but but that doesn't mean that we can't just say enough I, I think what I'm saying is that this that maybe this isn't best framed as a critique of conceptual analysis. Oh, it should it be is. framed as a right because that is in fact what you're doing when you are making those criticisms about right <clears throat> to the psychologists. So like Roy Baumeister, when you're saying like the scale doesn't distinguish between determinism, fatalism, and belief in free will, to them that sounds like you guys are just like out there like right. That sounds excessive to them. But but I think it's valuable. So I don't think it's it's the method is is decent. I think that what you're complaining about isn't whether or not conceptual analysis can yield good results. It's just that, that it's divorced now from the kinds of questions that it started with in a way that is no longer meaningful to the well, endeavor. I guess I'm still not, I'm not sure I agree. So I, I don't, I think conceptual analysis as, as a, one of the many tools in your philosopher toolbox, you know, like the pliers or something like that, you know, some, you know that you will draw out on certain occasions, like when Baumeister publishes something that confuses determinism and fatalism. And I'm not thinking of a particular time, but I believe you that I've said that about, uh, about him. That's fine. But, for, but it's not like that. It's, it's practically the whole toolbox with a few exceptions. With like, I, but that's why I'm saying your claim is not that conceptual analysis as a tool doesn't yield truth. It's just that it is a, you're using the pliers for everything. I don't even think it yields truth. It, it, it yields a better way for us to know that when we talk about something, we're talking about the same thing. Yeah. It, it yields that. I don't think yeah. it yields but it's, truth. Like it's not like it doesn't yield well, okay, truth. So let's just way, say yeah. prog- progress can be made yeah. through the use yeah. of that. Tool. So that we're not talking past each other. I think that's valuable. Yeah. Right. And, 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 you know, I, and I hope philosophy doesn't get to a point where that's all it can do. Make sure, you know, this was, this was a little bit the logical positivist view that and I think someone said, maybe Norrath, that it's a handmaiden to science. That it can make sure when, when scientists talk about concepts like fitness or gene or, uh, you know, consciousness, that they're at least talking about the same thing. Right. I, I hope that philosophy has, because it certainly has in the past with 
with with great figures done more than just do that. Yeah. But so I think this is one of the differences in emphasis between us because I see a bunch of sloppy use of concepts in science, in particular in, in psychology. And I find it to be a tool that's underused. And I wish that our students would get trained in this so that they sure. could actually know what it means to, to, you know, you're inconsistently using this term. You're, it's an ill, you're, the scale is ill-defined because you say it's a scale of this, but it's actually asking a bunch of things that are this and all that. So, so I, you know, I think that my objection is like, whoa, 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 like that's the part of philosophy that I think is so useful for us as scientists. Yeah, but but I don't want to just be useful for social psychology. No, gra- no, but I just want to clarify I'm, that I'm really. I'm I want to clarify that, that what your yeah. objection isn't to just yeah. the the use of that tool and its value, but rather what you see as using the pliers for everything. Pliers aren't bad, but you don't want to use pliers to nail a, something in the wall. That's like, right. That's it. You could. You could try. You could try. <laughs> Let me, just to make sure that I'm not being unfair to conceptual analysis, I went on to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy <laughs> and what they say about conceptual analysis, this is on, 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 in their um, entry on concepts. And here are, and I want you to defend these explanations <laughs> of conceptual analysis. So I'm, I'm, I'm quoting, conceptual analysis is attractive to philosophers for a num- number of reasons. One is that it makes sense of a good deal of philosophical practice what Beeler calls the standard justificatory procedure. Philosophers are always constructing thought experiments and eliciting intuitions. If this practice makes sense, then there has to be an understanding of, uh, of, philo- of what philosophy is that would vindicate its utility. Now, is that the most question-begging justification of a method that you've ever seen? Well, we've been using this method, maybe, by, but I have, we haven't called it conceptual, but we've been using this method for all these years, it's got to be useful, right? So let's just keep doing it because that would make it sense of it being useful. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, is there any other way to read that? As yeah, this is uh, this is like mounting a, a defense of circular reasoning. So, um. so okay. So I thought that was about as question begging a justification for a method as I've ever read until I read the second one. A related attraction is that conceptual analysis explains why philosophy can be an a priori discipline, as many suppose it is. If philosophy is primarily about concepts and concepts can be investigated from the armchair, then the a priori character of philosophy is is secured. So now it's like, well, we have to justify the fact that we're not even willing to get off our ass and do anything more than just sit there and think about certain concepts. So conceptual analysis will make sense of why that's okay. I mean, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? This is like a, a soci- this is like a sociological explanation for why people are. I I wonder if the yeah you don't this get be, the, if this betrays <laughs> if this betrays the the author's disdain of a, um, you know yeah so that's what I would of, write what that's defense what I would write of it if, is like, that I you was know subtler than I am and trying right. to like totally condemn. If uh, conceptual analysis weren't important, we'd get paid even less than we do get paid. So therefore, or we might have to like get up off our our asses <laughs> and actually like care about the world. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> this is like faint this is faint praise but like, you know I, I, mean, I, I you honestly don't get the sense that he's being ironic here like he might actually be this might actually make sense to him he might actually think that oh yeah well because I, I I've, I've been trying for the last 10 years to get somebody to explain to me why it was useful or in any way worthwhile to get this really precise definition of knowledge and <laughs> 85% of the answers are always, well, I mean, Plato is worried about that, you know? Like, it's like, <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm not denying that. I'm saying why, though. Yeah, so, so, yeah, I mean, it seems that things have gotten out of hand. Um, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, my, that's exactly right. That's a good way of putting it. Um, but you know, as I was talking to you about this, so, so we have, you know, I think we've listed Black, between Blackburn and us, and we've, you know, there's all this just family problem. Like, so it's one thing to divorce yourself from the regular human connection um, because you're making progress. And it's one thing to divide and conquer and look at some small part of some small part because you are generating cumulative results. It's just that what we have with philosophy is that it's technical, it's divorced from humanity. There is a lack of cumulative results. So there is no reason, there is no good reason, right? Because of these things together, it seems as if as it stands, the practice really ought to change. But yes. one good, good reason why it persists is not one that's a justification. It is like there are grad students studying this stuff and they need jobs and there needs to be some work that is like, that seems like, oh yeah, they're doing this part of this endeavor. And they're, you know, like how the hell, like what is the, po- what like what is the positive claim? Student? Like, yeah. yeah, should you even go, like, should you even do it? Like defend philosophy. I'm, I'm yearning for a defense in general of philosophy and what's oh, good I mean, about I, it. I think philosophy, <laughs> for all the shit that I give philosophy, I think it's amazing. I mean, I think it's the thing that gives a huge amount of meaning to my life. And I think there's great philosophers who, in spite of the constraints of the profession, are still doing what I think philosophy ought to. That's why I loved his analogy. In the same way that great the great novelists and great artists that just shed light on aspects of the human experience. And philosophers have a way of doing that that's different from the way artists have of doing that. But it's not different in kind. It's just a different perspective. So I do think that that's, that, that, that that's a valuable role. And I also think, to answer your question more practically, that there is a place for that in philosophy. And there's the reason why I think there's a place for it is precisely because I think people are getting a little fed up with the hyper-technical, really boring, meticulous side of philosophy that has become dominant. For graduate, you know, what I tell graduates, so we have a master's program but not a PhD program, I tell my students, you got to work on the, the things that, that you love. And if somebody tells you, well, that's not marketable, they, you know, they have no idea what they're talking about. Nobody knows what's marketable and what's not marketable. What's marketable is somebody who's really good at what they do and who cares so much about their project. I mean, again, I don't either have a good idea of what's marketable. <laughs> but if you're given that you were dealing with so much incomplete information, like why wouldn't you work on something that you're actually passionate about? And if you're passionate about coming up with a new variation on the 59th counterexample to uh, Mary case or zombie case, then that's fine. Then do that. But don't do it because you think you should. Right. But I think, but, but, but I think that what we've just said is that, that maybe you shouldn't be passionate about it. I mean, that, like, right. I think no, that, no, no, right? right. I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I do have a little bit of let a thousand flowers bloom. It's just that the conceptual analysis flowers are like weeds that are just taking over the yard. 
<laughs> and so like so you know if, if there was just a few people working on that n- stuff that nonsense like in science too in art you know it's not like in english nobody's working on some boring project or some ultimately won't bear fruit project right that's just part of the process of because you never know what maybe it will bear fruit you know like i don't think it will but maybe it will so you always you have to cover a lot of ground to to get the really good stuff but the only way it's going to be really good at all is if you care about it and not just doing it in some sort of calculating way. Well, but, I mean, but caring about it is also, you know, because it's you can't be a grad student now and just write, you know, my dissertation is going to be a very long essay on what, you know, on on the good or something. I, I mean, like there is just this pressure, uh, not just because it's marketable and 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 not right. It's just that that's that's what. You can't be too ambitious. Yeah, you can't. Like the meaning of life, like, okay, Susan Wolf can write a book on it. Thomas Nagel can write an essay on it. But your dissertation can't be titled The Meaning of Life or What is Justice? Because people will be like, you got to cover what everybody has already said about that. So so I I guess, I mean, let me get your thoughts on this. So one of the things that in this article, The End of Philosophy, that he says, which I never really thought about, is a sort of endemic problem in philosophy is the fact that you have to cite all this literature and that you have to, you know, anytime, if, if you're writing on a topic, you have to show that you're aware of all the other people who have written on this topic. Right. And the, the author says that that's actually ludicrous, right? Unless citing another person contributes to the argument you're trying to make there's really no reason for you to mention it and i and i think that's right and you know this was the best advice i got in grad school was from alex rosenberg my professor who said uh he was my dis- don't think feel like you have to cite every person he's like just write what you want to write don't think that you have to cover the ground that everybody else has covered now i get in the sciences first of all you guys get paid based on your citations you guys get tenure based on <laughs> whether that's good or not i don't know but we don't like, like right. so it makes really almost no difference whether some grad student cites my paper in a dissertation or not. No, but there's a difference between citing versus being responsible for what what the contribution that others have made is, you know. So, you know, I, I think you that one of know. the – Yeah, so, it's, so if a student came in and said, hey, um, I have this idea, you know, most people think that we're either free or we're entirely determined. But I think there's some compatible view that could hold that you're determined and free. Like you'd be like, yeah, buddy, it's called compatibilism and like read last, you know, right. hundreds of years. Right. right. So, well, obviously you can't just come, you can't just say something that has already been said before, but my right, point, but, I don't see a problem with attacking a big issue in a way that nobody has addressed it. No, but before. I mean, but I think that one of the reasons that you would, would say like you, you want people to have read, you don't know if somebody has said what you've said yeah, like, I'm not, as a responsible yeah. scholar, you got to, you okay. know. Sorry. So you, right, you have to we, read it. You have to be familiar with what other people have said just so that you don't repeat. So that you know you're saying something new. Yeah, yeah, right? That's fine. But you said before that Susan Wolf can write on the meaning of life, but a grad student can't. And I guess that's where I disagree. Although, again, maybe Yeah, well, that was a different point. That was just about like a yeah. huge chunk of problem that you're biting off. Right. But like, like why not? Why? If, no, if, no, no, no. I agree that they should. Yeah. If a grad, yeah, yeah. I'm just I'm just saying like just. In, in a very sort of sociolo- as a sociological point, like when, you know, who's going to graduate a PhD student by, like whose committee is going to say like, great, like do it. But you know, it's funny, like you say that and I'm like, yeah, right. What committee is going to responsibly say, sure, write, a, write your dissertation <laughs> on the meaning of life or on the nature of justice. Or a, but why not? You know, some people, 
their talents lie in attacking big questions in a more impressionistic way, and other people's talents lie in packing in a bunch of technical terms, you know, whatever. So, right. like, but why, why only encourage the, the latter and not the former? I mean, I agree with you. I'm just, I, from a very practical perspective, I think, as for, for if we're telling a grad student to do this, they're, you know, and they say, like, my committee would never, you know, like, I came into philosophy thinking maybe I could tackle what is right. And now I'm having to, you know, deal with Frankfurt cases um, and the 20 years of objections to them. I, I guess that's the thing is that here's, I, I, I think that's a misconception. So, and I, and I'm only going from my own experience, but I've been on a couple of hiring committees right now. And we have a member of our department who's a very accomplished and very meticulous logician, right? I remember I was so encouraged to hear him say this. He said, when we were looking for our candidates, I, I don't, I don't want somebody who I'm not interested in what they're talking about at all. I, I have to be interested for that to be somebody that I'm going to recommend. And, and you know, you think about that, it, it goes back to what the, you know, the specialization point. If you can't, if you're only of interest to the people who are in your minor subfield, which is, I think, how graduate students are sometimes encouraged to write their dissertations, I don't think that helps you. There's no... St- string of successes of people right. who, who do it like that you know and when they do they're usually from a top institution and people are like yeah well i don't give a shit about their writing sample but they are from princeton or rutgers or nyu and so you know that'll look good for us so we'll change so philosophy will change so one one advisor at a time yeah <laughs> that's right and one graduate student who just doesn't give a fuck at a time one like m M&M graduate student <laughs> nas to use your language <laughs> who 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 will yeah the problem is the re- the reward for a philosopher who does that never is like a million records and fame <laughs> well no definitely not but it could be a great job doing something you love instead of doing something you feel like you should do and if not just take a job at a consulting firm at least you'll be making money it's just you know it's 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 i think people also like because it's so hard to get a job right now people think that they have to like you know they have to conform more closely to what they see is going on in philosophy. But it's just hard to get a job because it's hard to get a job. It's not because, you know, you're not you're not being a stickler enough for every little detail. Right, right. It's just really fucking bad out there right now. I don't know if it's <laughs> right. as true for social psychology. Is it? Well, I mean it's it's no it's it's gotten better and it'll always be better than probably philosophy or another humanity because of the amount of grants that are out there. You can get a postdoc and right. but it is hard. I mean it's yeah, it's I think I think a little more difficult than than it would be in philosophy or in 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 a field where there is no other sources of funding. Like, yeah. I mean, philosophy gets some funds. We get Card. some. Yeah, I mean, we'll get the Templeton grant. <laughs> Templeton, but I think that you have to believe in Jesus to get that. Well, do you? Well, <laughs> I, I think that you have to get baptized. I you, think Paul Bloom's been baptized a couple times. I was baptized in that barber's <laughs> chair, so I'm good now. <laughs> I could hear the hissing sounds of the water when Paul is being baptized. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I don't know. We Have we talked about this enough? I think so. I think so. But I'm curious. You know, a lot of our listeners um, have, have are graduate students in the field. Um, and I, I, sometimes I feel just this common despair coming, but, but maybe in an effort to just be more positive, like I want to hear, you know, sort of like the good stories, like what good philosophy is like, how, how valuable you think it is or how you were allowed to like write a 
fucking essay on the meaning of life or yeah. something. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I want to hear those too. Because yeah. I, I, I get a lot of students that, I, you know, and I'm, I feel like my role in the department is to encourage them to do the thing that draws them and not to try to predict what other people will like. And then, you know, there's plenty of other professors who play the other side, but I want to hear where that's successful. Or am I just leading the students that are too dumb <laughs> to listen to me astray, you know? <laughs> so you can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. Oh, at one other thing. Yeah. We want to do another movie episode, and oh, we're yeah. open to suggestions for movies. So, right. so um, email us, like, what movie would you like to see? And we'll probably get Yoel on. There's uh, just not enough movies on conceptual analysis. <laughs> and so, I wonder why. All right, uh, send us your ideas for films. Till next time. Till next time. Just a very bad wizard.